0: Hey, it's Andrew here. And today on the show, I have Steli Efti, the CEO and co-founder of Close, a cloud-based CRM optimized to help salespeople close more deals. We talked about how Close aligns their sales, success, and company around long-term retention. We also touched on how to build a predictable, repeatable, and scalable sales process, how to define your ideal customer persona, the biggest mistakes sales teams make, and why building up your sales team's confidence will reduce churn by aligning their pitch with the value your company delivers. If you have any aha moments while listening to this episode, I would love to hear what they are, and you can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow.
1: just gun for revenue in the door
0: this is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth.
1: How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement.
0: Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Steli, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's, it really is great to have you here, uh, Stili. Obviously, I think you as well uh, yourself come from Greece, so I'm based out in Cyprus. It's always interesting to hear someone who's made the trip out from Europe and over to the Valley. Uh, maybe you can just start off and just give us a little quick intro of uh, your history to date, how you got over to Silicon Valley, and then what you're working on currently.
1: Yeah, um, so uh, as you said, you know, I'm originally from Greece. Um, was uh, grew up in Germany, um, and oftentimes when I'm in the US, I tell people, yeah, I, I tell people Americans usually when I give talks, I say, you know, I have the best that Europe has to offer—the two <laughs> opposite ends of the cultural spectrum in Europe, right? Uh, Germans and Greeks—they don't mix that well culturally, Absolutely. And so, so, and I grew up even in the most conservative part of Germany, the most German part of Germany, which is Stuttgart, yeah. uh, a big kind of car town. Yeah. And um, and dropped out of uh, a school at a fairly young age, started kind of my entrepreneurial journey around 18 or so, um, and did a few small businesses um, in Germany, nothing really related to technology or software, but did quite well in a, in a young age. And then um, 12, 13 years ago, I had an idea for a technology startup, and I had no idea about Tech or startups. I knew nobody who had any clue about how to build software or how to build an internet company or how to raise money or any of that. And so the so I decided to do the only unreasonable thing possible, which is I sold everything I had. I bought a one way ticket to San Francisco, and uh, I made the leap uh, from Europe to the U.S., thinking this would be a great adventure, and I would build kind of the next big unicorn, billion dollar business that would change the world in Silicon Valley. Now I don't want to kill the suspense uh, instantly for the listeners, but that first venture didn't quite work out that way as yeah. I'd imagine. It was not quite as easy as I thought it would be. Um, so the first company was a soul-crushing, uh, slow failure and defeat. Uh, I worked on that company for five years. I made kind of every mistake you could make, and I made every mistake three to four times just to be sure that it doesn't work. And uh, so, um, so at the end, I had to finally um, accept. Failure with that company, I was financially bankrupt, emotionally bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. I was really kind of as you do qu- yeah. quite done after those five years. And then um, I got lucky and I, I, uh, a friend of mine had an idea. I wanted just to support him, give him some advice, and before I knew it, we had started a new startup, and that company got accepted into Y Combinator, which kind of make a, made a big difference. Um, and we went off the races, you know, and kind of became, I moved, I I moved sort of being a total outsider in Silicon Valley, trying to understand how the system works, trying to understand how to build software products to all of a sudden being at this incredible incubator and meeting all these amazing investors and raising all this money and building an amazing team and and, and getting some early success. Um, but that company as well, like had to go through a bunch of pivots and turns and twists. But is the company that today, it it changed, we pivoted quite drastically twice, but uh, today is the company that I'm still running and and today we're quite successful. And um, we had started as a a company called Elastic Sales that was kind of a sales team on demand that was fully outsourced for B2B companies. And so B2B startups and SaaS companies could reach out to us and we would build a sales team kind of quote unquote in the cloud for them and go out and inquire customers for them. And uh, pivoted from that to an inside sales CRM business. So from day one, we started building software that was what we called our secret sauce and was only available to our salespeople. The reason we built software was that we thought that the software would allow our sales team to kind of scale and our salespeople to be happier, more productive at work. And eventually the software became so good that we decided to test it in the market and put it out there and see if anybody wanted to buy it. And, And very quickly we realized that a lot more people wanted to buy the software than the services, and the services outgrew the software business, outgrew the services one. And um, that's a company I'm running today. It's called uh, Close. You can find us at close.com. It's an inside sales serum that a lot of startups around the world are using. uh, And uh, we're highly profitable. We're fully remote. Um, And uh, yeah, that's kind of the the short-ish version of uh, from Europe to Silicon Valley to today.
0: Nice. Uh, I think obviously in that there's definitely lots of ups and downs and uh, having to keep pushing forward to make sure you get to where you want it to be. I actually wanted to touch on where you started talking about Elastic Inc. and how you actually started out as the consultancy. Uh, I think I watched one of your talks that you uh, worked with a, around 200 plus different venture backed companies and helping them scale their sales. Yep. What I want to do is sort of dive into is what are some of the biggest things that you saw that the companies were doing wrong when it came to their sales and setting up their sales funnels within these uh, venture-backed companies? What would you say is the number one biggest mistake?
1: The biggest mistake? The biggest mistake was the hope that sales could solve a fundamental issue with the business, right? So a lot of these companies, they did not have product market fit. They were they were operating one or two steps ahead of. Where, they were operating two or three steps ahead of where their company really was. And so they would reach out to us, and they, you know, they had raised a Series A that like six millions in the bank, and they had like twelve customers and a product launched. And and what they wanted was to scale sales, when what they really needed was. Um, A sales exploration versus sales execution, right? So it's like thinking about your your sales process and your sales model as a separate product that needs to be MVP'd as well, right? And that needs to be iterated on until you have something that truly can scale was something that uh, most companies didn't want to think about and weren't thinking about. They were thinking about product in a very kind of lean startup way, but they were thinking about sales in the kind of old-school way of like, let's just spend a million dollars, hire a ton of sales reps, and just go out there and get a ton of customers in one big, giant, leaping step. right? And that just never, ever worked. They weren't ready to scale a sales team. we uh, were way ahead of their, their face. I, I think that that was kind of, throughout the bank, the number one issue that all of these companies had.
0: All of them. And what was some like the typical approach? How would you approach a company like that that was at the stage they hadn't really got product market fit? What would your advice typically be for them when it came to sales then?
1: So we, we advise them to uh, realize that the first step they have to do is realize that they need a sales model that is predictable, repeatable, and scalable before they think about scaling. And to accomplish these things, we had to define and explain to them. What does predictable mean? Well, predictable means that you can tell me today what your sales numbers are going to be for the next two, three, four months, and you're going to be right about it, right? Do you have any kind of, do you know that if you take a certain type of actions, do you know roundabout, it doesn't, never has to be perfect, but do you know ballpark what the results are going to be of certain actions? If you have closed a bunch of deals, but none of the way that you close these deals can be repeated. You don't have predictability. If you don't have predictability, you cannot scale, right? So we had to teach them that they had to like find these models of selling that didn't just result in a closed deal, but that were designed in a way where you knew if we do this sort of actions, if we put, if we do these sort of inputs, this is going to be the output at the end and we can kind of see the future. And then when you have that repeatability and predictability, then you still might not be ready to scale because then you need to check, does the sales model that you've built, does it scale? Right? I'll give you a dumb example. Maybe the way I sell is that uh, you know, I have uh, a cousin that, uh, that works at a certain kind of company and so I pitch my cousin and the cousin buys. And let's say I have 12 cousins and I decide every month I'll pitch one cousin. Typical <laughs> Greek
0: family, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty big Greek family. But that would be... Pretty repeatable, right? Not pretty predictable. I will pitch one of my family members every month, and chances are that they're gonna all say yes. Cool. But it's obviously not scalable. I can't, I don't have 10 cousins, I don't have a hundred cousins I can pitch every month. I don't have a thousand of them. So it might be a source that is predictable and repeatable, but it might be a source that just in terms of quantity is very low, even if it's high quality. So, I cannot hire a thousand people and tell them to do the same thing that I'm doing right now, right So that is the 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 area that then determines if it can be scaled so i would ex- we would explain to them that they have to figure out predictability, repeatability, and scalability, and that the phase they're in, the, the way they need to think about selling right now is that they need to do a lot of experiments, they need to find sales market fit. And they need to figure these things out and be very involved in them before they're thinking about hiring tons and tons of people and quote-unquote scaling something.
0: Interesting. Um, I think definitely the concept of experimenting with sales is something that's definitely overlooked uh, and trying to really understand and fine-tune and perfect the sales uh, model. Could you walk us through maybe a couple of examples of experiments that sales teams could be making to improve their sales process?
1: Yeah, I think the first and foremost thing is the thing nobody wants to think about, which is lead generation, right? Um, So most startups, again, when they think about experimentation around selling, what they think is practicing a different pitch, working on their uh, PDF executive summary or their slide deck, um, thinking about their negotiation tactics or their contract or what kind of discounts to give. Um, you know, helping their sales reps to do a better pitch or become better salespeople. All that stuff is fine, but it's irrelevant. The most significant thing you're probably going to struggle with is finding great lead sources. That means understanding who your ideal customer is and who it isn't right now, understanding where to find these customers, where to find contact information about these types of customers, And then realizing if that source of leads, how big it is, how repeatable, how scalable it is. Once you have the lead gen part figured out, and that usually needs a lot of back and forth, a lot of trial and error, a lot of experimentation. Once you have that figured out, then you can start testing around how do we approach these leads? How do we contact these people? How do we get them to take notice of our company, our product? And how do we start a conversation and a qualification exploration process? And once you figure out that, what's the, what, what, how are these people buying today? Um, how do they want to be approached? What kind of messaging and communication channel is effective for them? Once you figure out all these things, then and only then is the very last step. You start worrying about how do we pitch? How do we demo? How do we negotiate? And how do we close? Now I'll tell you this. If I had the choice between two companies, one that has an amazing lead source, amazing uh, um, kind of clarity on how to connect with those leads, but was terrible at pitching and negotiating and closing. Or a company that had no lead source whatsoever, no clarity on the channels, but had incredible ninjas of selling, right? These amazing pitchers and negotiators. If I could choose one company to put all my money in, I would choose the first one. Because if you're terrible at selling, but you have an incredible ideal who your ideal customer is and you have a super great way to reach them. And it's incredibly well scalable. Even if you're bad at pitching and negotiating, you're still going to close a lot of deals, right? And it's going to be easy to fix your problem because coaching you to get better at selling is not that difficult. But if you're in a company that doesn't know who their customer is, doesn't know how to reach them and how to contact them, No sales pitching in the world is going to save you.
0: It's going to work, yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit more detail then. When it comes to the ideal customer profiles, uh, how would you typically go about figuring out what a company's ideal customer profile looks like and what would the research that you would do to determine this and figure it out?
1: Well, hopefully when you start the company, you had somebody in mind, even if it was yourself. That's typically a really good way of starting because you know yourself quite intimately, right? But hopefully you had some idea of who your ideal customer is. The biggest mistake that a lot of companies make in the beginning when they're trying to define that is that they go way too broad, way too quickly, right? So companies will come to me and they'll say, Steli, um, our results are very inconsistent. Every month we do the same outreach. We do the same amount of calls, the same amount of emails. And we get v- our results are not consistent. Why? And, You know, it depends. Obviously, every company is different, but nine out of 10 times the reason for why is because the definition of the ideal customer is way too broad. So I'll ask them, what's your ideal customer? And they say, well, we have a very good idea of who are ideal customers. Ideal customer is any company in the US between one and 100,000 employees. Well, of course, this is so broad that if you email, you know, 1,000 companies this month and 1,000 companies next month, and in this month's bucket, there are you know mostly one to two person companies and a few thousand person companies. And next month, you email mostly a thousand person companies and a few one to two. Of course, your results are going to be completely different. These are very different companies. So, what I advise companies to do is to start incredibly niche, so niche that you feel uncomfortable, so niche that you go stelly. This this is too small. This is only five companies in the world. And I will respond to that, awesome. If it's only five companies in the world, we know who they are. Let's go get them. And so I would say start super, super specific. See if you can win them over and then go broader. Okay, now that we have these five customers, who are their competitors? Who are their neighbors? Who are companies that are very, very similar but not quite exactly this? And so you broaden your definition and you go and you get those customers. And then you keep broadening it, hopefully until at some point it's so broad that you, that uh, that it that you, you know, own the entire planet and every company in the world. But when you go too broad in the beginning, it makes it impossible for you to get consistency or to get any kind of like sales process going. The other thing that I'll say is that, you know, in the beginning, let's say that you, you don't know how to go super specific, you might start off by... Just trying to get any low-hanging fruit customer you can get and talk to all kinds of customers and company sizes, that's fine. That's fine for your first 10, 20, 30 customers. But once you get to the 30, 40, 50, you need to start looking into who of these companies was easiest to reach and who has the easiest way for us to go and reach more of this type of customers. And also, who of these companies show the best retention? Who show us the highest success rates? success measured by they're getting a ton of value from us and they realize that they get a ton of value. You need to start really collecting data, not just based on, well, we got 50 customers, but who of these customers is seeing success with you? And then based on that success, that should then determine what kind of marketing you're going to do, what kind of product development you're going to do, what kind of selling and sales outreach you're going to do moving forward.
0: Yeah, so you definitely, that was actually going to be my next question we're going to start to dive into a bit deeper now. But uh, when it comes to retention itself, what role does uh, sales play in retention? And I, I think like typically sales teams maybe sometimes often focus a little bit too much on the short-term goals versus the long-term view. And what is your view on this?
1: I would say that salespeople are, I mean, the founders and the the leadership in the company is always the root of all problems, Right. But if there's a second group, it's the sales team. I mean, it's as simple as that. Retention problems and re- retention either problems or retention wins start with the sales team. The sales team determines who they acquire as a customer and how careful they are to figure out is this a customer that fits our ideal customer profile? Is this a customer that can truly see success with us? The sales team decides how much. How honest and transparent are we about our shortcomings? How upfront are we about telling people that some of the things they really need are things we don't yet have? Or how much bullshitting are we going to do to disclose the deal today? How many promises that we're going to make that are probably going to be too much of a stretch? Yeah, absolutely. The sales team, if the, if the sales team is bringing in revenue, and usually the sales team is only being incentivized to focus on bringing in as much revenue as possible. They're not incentivized or educated to worry at all about retention. And then what do they do? All they care about is closing every deal they can. They don't care about how shitty it is. They don't care about how bad of a fit it is. If they can get your money, they'll get it. And then they pass on the buck to the success team. The success team then complains all day long because they connect with these customers and they're like, what the hell is going on here? They were promised all kinds of things we can't do they have these weird expectations. The use cases are use cases where our product breaks. And then the success team has to kind of deal with all that trouble. And that's a lot of yeah. times the, the place where all kind of internal problems and fights are happening. So I think it's absolutely mm-hmm. fundamental if you want to have great retention to educate your sales team and to incentivize your sales team to care about only closing good deals.
0: Maybe you can talk us through that a little bit. So it's definitely an interesting concept that we've heard before. But how do you go about incentivizing sales teams um, for only closing good deals? What does that typically look like? And how would you go about qualifying uh, leads and sales?
1: Well, I'll give you two simple ways. One was that I said, educate them. You can do this in direct and indirect ways, right? I mean, you need to, in a SaaS business, you need to teach your sales team that, your business model relies on people staying with you and keep paying you for a really long time. Or if we close customers that leave later, that leave in a few months because they're unhappy, this company is going to implode, right? And so if you have equity in this company, it's going to be worthless. If you are planning to have a career based on this company and make more and more money, that's going to be gone all of a sudden. And if you want to actually – be part of something great, something where every other company will want to hire you because you worked at, at our company and you've made a name for yourself because we made a name as a business in, the, in, in our market um, versus a business that everybody knows failed because we we imploded. You, you need to know that we everything you want to accomplish here relies on you closing good deals. That's one thing. The other thing is giving the sales team a lot of exposure. So sometimes you might want to have the sales team might want to explore like a setup where you have sales pots where uh, or customer pots where you don't just have a room full of salespeople and then a completely different room full of success people. What you might want to explore is having these customer pots where you have um, two sales reps, two success reps, and one support rep and they make up one team that supports a customer in their entire life cycle. And that's a very different system. So if I close a bad deal, my coworker that sits at the same Cubicle with me, or the same office room with me, is the success rep that I passed on the deal that I have to listen to when they talk to the customer. When she goes, well, what did Sally promise? No, we can't do this. Well, what did Sally say? That's a much closer pain than if you're some anonymous employee in another building that I know is in some department I don't care about. So you have to educate people. And then when it comes to incentivizing, well, very simple. Don't just pay me on closed deals. Don't just pay me on revenue. Give me two sorts of payment. The first payment is based on revenue, and the second part of my commission or bonus payment is based on retention of that uh, retention numbers based on new revenue. So, and this will you'll have to evolve this basically forever as a as a growing company. You'll start with one commission model, and commission models are another really complicated thing that constantly needs to be iterated and worked and fixed and changed as your business changes. But um, instead of just paying me whatever it is, you know. 10% Ten uh, percent on the first month 's payment, you pay me five percent on the first month payment or six percent on the first month payment, and then you pay me the other four um, percent you know three months later or six months later, whatever your cut off is on early um, churn and retention where the deal has whatever quote unquote proven itself to be a good deal right so you you split it out a little bit you incentivize me or you have some kind of a uh, customer facing bonus where you say The sales team gets a little bit of commission and the success team gets a bit of a commission, but then both teams get another bonus or the sales team gets another really big bonus if we hit a certain company-wide retention or churn rate. So I'm heavily incentivized to try to help the company to have good retention. Um, Those are some simple ways of, of helping with this.
0: That's fantastic. And a lot of that makes total, total sense as well. I think when it comes to as well aligning that incentive with the long-term sort of view retention, do you see as well that there's a ways, like you mentioned it a little bit with the team capacity of bringing together customer success and sales, but is there a way as well to sort of closely align their goals together uh, better when it comes to incentives? So monetary is one aspect of it uh, on, the, on the one side, but then when it came to sort of those independent teams working together, and I've seen it typically as well. Like we've worked with a few suppliers recently, where um, they had their support engineer, they had their customer success and uh, salesperson all working together. What would some of like the goals look like for a team that's working with a customer there when it's not just revenue?
1: Well, it really could just be a, um, I mean, it could be a number of things, right? It could you could measure at what pace is this team acquiring. Retaining onboarding and expanding a customer, right? Um, What is the uh, NPS score for this group, for these customers, right? Um, Both NPS for the support they're getting and the, the, the customer service they're getting and also the NPS on how they experience the product, right? If I onboard you, if I sell you my product in the wrong way and I onboard you in the wrong way and I support you in the wrong way, your experience with my product might be completely different than if I do it really well and in the right way And you both of these customers might talk about the product itself in a completely different way, right? Mm -hmm. Although it was the same product. It was just the way we explained it to you, the things we showed you, the way we onboarded you and we helped you expand were completely different. So you could measure NPS, customer satisfaction. You could just measure, you know, are we acquiring a lot more aggressively than others but then retaining less? Or are we acquiring slower but retaining better? You could uh, measure expansion, right? Uh, in all kinds of things, is this team really good at upselling? That's a big um, initiative. It could be that the customer that we acquire stays the same, but we're really good at upgrading them versus it could be that we care much more about um, expansion within the customer organization because we're going after bigger co- company. So we don't care necessarily that much about them upgrading their plans. We care about getting more penetration in the company. So here are two teams This team is acquiring, you know, 10 customers a month and the other one is doing the same. They have the same customer churn rates, but this one team is just really good at growing these accounts really crazily, right? So um, they go from, they're starting at 10 seats, but within 12 months, on average, they get their, the size to double to 20 seats versus the other team is closing 10 seats and it only grows to 12, right? What is going on here? all kinds of things. It depends really on what is your company priority right now? What is the kind of company-wide strategic priorities? And then you want to have these priorities break down to the way that you align, design, and incentivize these teams to work.
0: Yep, makes a lot of sense. The one thing I wanted to touch on earlier was you mentioned something around the promise fit. And I think this is one of the biggest reasons as well when it comes to sales and uh, churn itself is when we have marketing or sales teams promising things that our products can't do. What are some of the ways uh, that you've seen this happen within companies and then companies are able to sort of rectify this? Um, how do you go about educating sales teams and marketing to make sure that they're aligned with product?
1: Yeah. So I think that, um, I think that, you know, there's kind of a, a struggle balance between uh, both sides to, to a certain degree you as a whole as a company as a startup in the early phases especially you want to kind of be pitching the vision that's slightly ahead of reality but that is is not too far ahead so that it's not attainable to catch up with that right and you know Theranos or whatever the company's called with a kind of true blood is all around the media because that was a company that was promising something that was so far in the future that it was unattainable right but pretending it's already reality today that's that's when you get in real trouble. But a lot of times sales teams, salespeople really, really want to say yes to customers because they feel like the more they say yes, the more likely the customer is going to like them and, and buy. So it's not really, I mean, there's some cases where sales teams are going to be, there's going to be real black sheep, people that will just lie and don't care. But a lot of the problems are not with those types of sales people. Those types of sales people are easy to spot, hopefully, and easy to get rid of. The problem is more in the gray sheep zone. It's people that are actually kind of honest and want to do well. But then when a customer is like, well, um, you know, whatever, are you going to do feature X, Y, Z? And you know, as a salesperson that you've discussed it internally and people in the company have said, yeah, this is something we want to do. And it's not on the roadmap yet. But the customer is like, is this something you're going to do? You don't just want to say no. And you just go, well, yeah, it's totally something we want to do. Um, I'm not quite sure when, but I think it's definitely something that's that's gonna that, that we're going to have soon. And then it's something that might take another three years to be on the roadmap, right? It's these little mistakes that create big problems down the line. And so what you really want to do is just, you know, you need a sales team that is, funny enough, more confident. And, and, and this is a funky surprise because you would think like, well, don't you have to Teach and coach the the sales team on honesty. It's not an honesty issue; it is a confidence issue. When you have a sales team and salespeople that are really confident in the product today, and really confident in their clarity on what the company is going to accomplish in the next month or two, and they're confident also in saying no, you don't have these issues. Like, I, I, you know, I'll be on calls with customers, and if you and the customer says, well. Close doesn't have a mobile app. How the hell is that? Are you going to have a mobile app? An inexperienced sales rep might go, yeah, it's definitely something we want to have. And yeah, it's crazy that we don't have it yet. But you know, a big big focus of ours is instant sales, but but it's definitely something we're working on. That's one version of it. Right. And then here's what I would say to the same customer. You know, when the customer goes, well, you don't have a mobile app, what the hell is wrong with you? Are you going to have a mobile app? I would say, let me ask you this. Is most of your selling done outside and on the go, or are you mostly inside sales focused? Well, we're mostly inside sales focused, but I think a modern company needs to have a mobile app. I would say, I get that, and I agree with you. We are 100% focused on inside sales, and we have the best inside sales CRM in the world. That's why we've grown to thousands of customers around the world. That's why our customers are crushing it. We're highly profitable, and we get these incredible ratings from our customers. If you want the best inside sales CRM in the world, you're talking to the right person. We do want to do a better job to support the occasional use case when you are on the go and you want to update something and look something up. I think we've done a poor job. Something we want to do better. But honestly, I don't know when we're going to attack this. It's not on the roadmap for the next two quarters. So if you absolutely need a mobile app, you need to go somewhere else. But if you really need the best inside sales CRM system, let's keep talking. And And what is the difference between the two of us? It's not that I'm more honest. It's just I'm more confident. I'm confident to tell the truth. I'm confident to sell you on why what we're doing today is good and is what you really need. And this other shit you're asking about might be a distraction. And an inexperienced, insecure sales rep, they're not confident enough. So they will always err on the side of saying yes to the customer, agreeing or making, say, or giving these like promises. Yeah, yeah, I think we're working on this. I think we're going to have this. Why? Because they're so insecure.
0: And I think definitely, like you're saying, the confidence to actually know what the customer really wants when it comes to it. So it's not just like beating around the bush and trying to get every feature under the sun. It's really focusing on what are they trying to achieve and then having the confidence to tell them that you've got what they need.
1: Also the confidence to know who your ideal customer is and who it isn't, right? So today, if Coca-Cola pings one of our sales reps and says, we want to buy a CRM for 20,000 sales reps, but we have this huge list of demands, Nobody in, this, in my company goes in a panic. The sales rep just goes, ha, that's funny. Uh, you know, we're not really serving enterprise-level customers. If you sign up for the product yourself and you decide you want to purchase it without having to have uh, enterprise-level uh, service and support in this huge list of demand, go ahead and do it. But if not, I would recommend you these other vendors. And, and it's not a problem versus if we don't know who our customer is and a big customer comes then we're going to, the sales rep is going to jump into action. Oh my God, this is so exciting. Yes, uh, we need to do all these features. Everybody in this company, please, we need to build these features. I'm going to tell Coca-Cola, yes, this things we're working on it. And then you're creating these issues. But if your sales rep know who is a qualified customer, who isn't? Who's ideal customer, who isn't? What is on the roadmap and what isn't? What, why are we good at what we do? And why is what we do valuable? Why isn't it? Then they can speak confidently and then they are more comfortable to say no they're more comfortable to speak the truth.
0: Yep. Anti-personas, I think, are just as powerful as understanding your personas themselves. Yeah. Last question I wanted to ask uh, for today, stelly and just to put you on the spot a little bit, I um, don't think this would ever happen, but let's say one day you get put into a new role now, heading up sales at a new company, and uh, you've been tasked to set up sales and get it uh, working, but also at the same time, the company is having a retention problem. Where do you start? What is the first actions you do within the first month?
1: Uh, I visit every single customer, um, as many as I can that have churned, as many as I can that have been with us for a while, and as many as I can that have just closed. And I try to understand who they are, what they do, what the differences and commonalities are. I would try to visit their office to see their team, meet the people there, uh, watch the new tool they're using and why and what success and, and failure they have, try to understand how they heard about us. And what was confusing or why they left? Like I would try to spend as much time with like, quote unquote, unscalable tactics of like trying to generate as many insights about the customer as possible. And the most context-rich environment is not going to be me looking at a spreadsheet with some numbers, right? the most context-rich environment is actually going to be meeting these customers in person, ideally at their offices in the natural habitat where I can like see their team, see what they're doing and just absorb and learn and ask as many questions as possible to try to get a full picture of what has happened so far and why are we where we are and how do companies and customers think about us and where there's a mismatch between the way how we think about us and how other people think about us. I would spend a lot of time trying to understand the customers, the churn, what has happened so far. And I wouldn't try to understand it based on some metrics and some numbers somebody is generating in a report to me. I would go out there and get my feet and hands dirty and, and mingle with the customer.
0: You're directly from the horse's mouth. Yep. So yeah. I think that was excellent. Thanks. I just, before we wrap up as well, I know like it's a, a thing of yours as well. You've spoken about your two little boys uh, on all your different yeah. uh, talks and shows that you have. I didn't want to let this be one of those that they, they weren't. So I don't know if you want to have a <laughs> shout out to them as well.
1: Oh, always. Yeah. I appreciate the chance. I have two little, two little ninjas uh, that are lethal and that are uh, my first. Two truly bosses in my life. Um, so, a big shout out to those. I miss and love them. Um, and another thing that I want to shout out before we wrap up the episode one is for people that are listening to this and uh, they're like, wow, you know, where do I start? And I wish I had more resources. Just send me an email, steli at close.com, S T E L I at close, like closing a deal.com, and just put in the subject line bundle, motherfucker, and I'll send you a link where you can get all my ebooks for free it's all my resources how to get started with selling how to do all the stuff that we discussed in a kind of an organized way to give you a kickstart and then if you like and love podcasts i have one with uh, the legendary and shah it's called the startup chat you can go to thestartupchat.com and find it there if you uh, enjoyed this episode you might like that podcast as well so check it
0: out Absolutely. Both of those are a must-resource and must-listen. So thanks very much, Telly. It's really great to have you today and really, really appreciate the time again. And Thank good you, luck. Thank
1: you for having me. Thank you so much.
0: Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you are able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, Blog posts and more. Subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to Andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.